0: This Bible teaching experience we're going through together this year is really meant to come at you from three different angles at three different levels. First of all, we'd love for all of you to read the Bible together with us ahead of what I'm preaching on Sunday morning. This book is called The Story. It's not the Bible, it's a collection of Bible readings that put the story of the Bible, the narrative arc of the Bible, in order chronologically. Not all of the Bible is here, but the thread of what the Bible tells us about God is. With little explanatory transitions when the story moves and it's going to move across some things without reprinting them, they'll let you know so you can read this cover to cover and read a great deal of the Bible and understand it from start to finish. That's one way, your individual reading. We also have small groups that are meeting here on campus and during the week they're using this little study guide called a participant's guide. When groups meet, whether before or after I've preached, they've done the reading, they'll, they've heard or will hear uh, me tell one of those Bible stories here on Sunday morning, and then we gather in a relational, friendly, discussion-oriented format to talk about what it means and how specifically we apply it to our lives. I'd love for all of you this year, before the year is over, to get into one of those groups. If you need one of these books, they're available there at the back table. This is only $5. This cost us $10. We're not making money on the deal. We just want you to have it. If money's tight and you need a copy of either or both of these books, just pick one up. There's some envelopes back there for you to leave the money if you have it with you. Strictly honor system. No cameras rolling. It's going to be okay. Okay? We just want you... Primarily, we want you to read the Bible, and let me invite you, if you've been doing the same thing for quite a while, to try something different. If you've been coming on Sunday morning, and you've been hearing me promote and cheer about groups for a while, and you've never tried one, why not try something? Because a wise man said that doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result is the very definition of? You've heard that one, right? Yeah, me too. Why don't I heed that good counsel? All right? I'm not calling you crazy if you're not in a group. I'm just inviting you to try something a little different that I think will be a blessing to you. We want to uh, help you get connected in that way. The small groups are all available online. You can look at the schedule, the location, and find something that fits you. Now then, uh, this world of ours is an increasingly dark place. As I read Luke chapter 2, which is where we're headed, I was reminded how dark the ancient world was and how the modern-day world really, except where the gospel has been known and believed, really hasn't improved at all. Let me give you a for instance. Right down Beach Boulevard and in another location in South Huntington Beach, uh, in July, local law enforcement with a whole bunch of help from a whole bunch of different people busted a sex slavery ring right here in Huntington Beach. What the devil is always at work, what sin is always at work is to degrade and destroy life at every point before life even begins in abortion so that you can be subjected if you've had the nerve to watch them, to see medical executives, people who were committed once upon a time to improving and saving life, joke about buying a Lamborghini while they eat lunch based on the commercialization of the body parts of babies that were killed in the womb that's real. The Kardashians are more famous, but that's real. Once people are born, they are used as so much chattel and discarded, there are people living within half a mile of here, apparently based on this bus, that get up every day knowing that they do not belong to themselves. They belong as property to an evil man who has kidnapped them many times from overseas, sometimes from right here in Southern California, and has put them on a path toward degradation and abuse that only ends in drug addiction and death unless somebody steps in and rescues them. Just in the last few days, our assembly has put a bill on its way to the governor's desk that will permit uh, physician-assisted suicide in the state of California at every point of life. Life is attacked, life is degraded, life is destroyed. What are we to do? The Bible tells us that we are to, for one thing, among many things we can do, we are to pray for those in authority over us so that we can have quiet, dignified, and godly lives. In America, you've been given the unique privilege of using your resources and using your voice to speak up and to rescue those and to defend those who cannot defend themselves. I pray that you will. On any of these issues, including this latest one, you can call or email or send a fax to Governor Brown whether that voice will be heard. Anybody knows, it doesn't seem based on the trajectory that it will, but at least you will have taken a stand and you will have used your voice for righteousness. Christians, Jesus said, are to be salt and light. And if you read across human history... At the heart of every good transformation in human society from the time Jesus appeared on earth, beginning with the end of gladiator fights in ancient Rome, stood a brave Christian or a brave community of believers who spoke words of life into a degraded, rotten culture they lived in. We can do the same, and I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Father, we're told to pray, so we want to, before we look into your word and we look at the ancient world, we want to pause and acknowledge your love for this world that we live in. We live in times like these by your will and choice, so help us to do what we should and be who we should. God, right behind Huntington Hospital, women were once enslaved. Doubtless, there are countless others that we drive past every day. Move in our hearts, empower our authorities, give them a love for righteousness and a diligence in their work. And point out to us, Lord, in any or all of these issues and the many that I don't have time to mention here on Sunday morning, give us your heart to speak for the defenseless. And if people would condemn themselves, Lord, let it be in spite of our love, in spite of our humility, in spite of our bold witness. In Jesus' name, amen. About once a week, and this is unique to my experience as a pastor back in the United States after growing up in Mexico and spending some time there, about once a week, I get an email from one marketing group or another that's basically inviting me to make a bigger deal about myself. One guy in particular, and this is the first one I really noticed, he said, the guys who write this stuff and the software they use to personalize it are really good. The subject line said, Bruce, why don't I know what you're teaching this fall? I'm like, gosh, I've been clear. I mean, we keep talking about the story, (laughs) the story, the story. I'm like, who's mad now? So I opened up my email, and it's not one of you. It's some guy in the Midwest, Illinois, I think, that has a marketing firm. And at the heart of that was this subtle invitation. Bruce, even though we've never met, I believe you're really cool. And what we need to do is work on your brand so that your incredibly great teaching can get out to the world. That was, he didn't say it quite like that, they never do. But that was basically the invitation. You're pretty awesome, why don't you get serious about branding yourself? Now, I was raised in Mexico, born in Texas. When it started talking about branding, that made me nervous because branding (laughs) on my grandfather's ranch was something that you wanted to have no part in, uh, unless you were on the other side of the iron, and even then it was a pretty tough go to see that or to do that. You certainly didn't want to be the recipient of branding. And this happens all the time. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, I know a a few Christian ministries that are trying to make a go of it on Snapchat. Just seems, I, I don't know exactly how that's supposed to work. A little troubling, frankly, if you ask me. But the message is the same. Get your brand, know your brand, promote your brand. Now, certainly there's some wisdom to be had there. We try hard to communicate clearly. If you've been in our church for years, hopefully you've noticed we've gotten a little bit better at it, not where we should be, but certainly better than we used to be with the help of some gifted people. God has sent us to help us on that. But this feels, as I read these emails, it feels different and it made me, as I read Luke 2, because that's where we are in the Bible, if you want to open your Bible there, it made me think about what's happening as the Bible turns to Jesus. You see, for 2,000 years, God has been promising, beginning with Abram, a man he chose out of moon-worshipping people, God made a promise to Abram 2,000 years before Jesus was born that Abram would have a child that would bless and save the nations. And for 2,000 years, God has been making those promises. You can read the Psalms of David 1,000 years before Jesus was born, and you can hear him sing about the life, the death, and even the resurrection of Jesus. You can read the prophet Isaiah detail in exquisite harmony, both the birth and the life and even the crucifixion of Jesus. And now, as we open the New Testament, now it's time for God to keep all of those promises. It's time to launch. It's time to go public. And I was reading my marketing emails that that asked me to be a bigger deal and thinking about how God finally decided to keep His promises I was struck by the difference in what I'm being invited to do and what God the Father, God Almighty, chose to do in keeping His promise by sending the gift of His Son on earth. If you were advising God Almighty, and no one can, but if you were asked, how shall I launch? How shall I present my Son to the world? I sincerely doubt you would have chosen to do what God did. In Luke chapter 2, we pick up the story of a beleaguered young family, one man and one young girl named Mary who probably couldn't have been a day over 17 if she had even had her 17th birthday. Completely unexpectedly, she has been told that she, in her own body, will be the recipient of God's child, that she will be the mother of Jesus, but the The Father is actually God Almighty, the Father himself, and that she will be the object of an unheard-of miracle, and that she will have the Son of God without marrying her fiancé, Joseph, who is eagerly waiting for his wedding day. In the middle of that promise and all the trouble that came with it, including Mary moving away to live with her cousin for a few months, because if Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, you need to understand the little town of Ma- Nazareth probably wasn't much bigger than the church campus you're sitting on. And if you can imagine an ancient world village in a, commun- in a sp- space of land no bigger than this, you can imagine how the tongue's wagged. That Mary's pregnant and they're not actually married yet. Joseph took it hard. You'll remember He could not. Who could expect any different? He could not give credit to the story that God had worked in his life. He had a mind, the Bible tells us, to set her aside quietly, being a righteous man. He wanted simply to move on his way, but God spoke up. God sent him a messenger saying, Joseph, don't be afraid to receive her as your wife. And now they have, and now we're ready to launch And instead of a grand announcement, this is what happened. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now you read that as a bunch of long ago and far away historical information. Stand with me in the dirt for a second and understand what's happening. The emperor has said, everybody go home and sign in. Now, this being government, why do you think they wanted to register everybody, know where everybody was? I bet you can guess. Yes, taxes. That's primarily why they want to know who you are, okay? That social security number was intended in some ways for your benefit, but for a lot of ways for the benefit of all the rest of us as you faithfully pay your taxes, right? Are you excited about that? These folks couldn't have been any more excited either. And notice the polling mechanism. It said, go home. Now, bring that into the modern world. If you had to go back to your hometown to sign in to some national registry to make sure that your taxes were up to date, what would that do to your family and job life here for the next few days? We would go all over the place. I'd go back to Texas, my wife, I suppose, would have to go to Colorado. Some of you would go to Ohio. Some of you would say, cool, I was born at Hogue Hospital. I'll just, drive down, I'll just drive down south on PCH. But it would be enormously disruptive. And this is how the launch starts. This is how God is going to introduce his son with a pagan emperor who has no love and no loyalty to anyone beyond himself calling the shots, and she's pregnant. Joseph perhaps took her with him. They were both descendants of David, but perhaps even in her pregnant state, Joseph decided it was a good idea for them to travel together because the wagging tongues back in their hometown were getting ever more vicious, and it gets worse. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Of course it did. <laughs> children, especially children being born, are remarkably inconsiderate of convenience. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Happened to us. I had a thing to do in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and we figured that two weeks before the due date, was plenty of time, my pastor told me not to go, and he said, Bruce, I don't want to be holding your son when you finally get your sorry rear end back here don't go. I talked to my wife. She said it was okay. I was happy to go to Rock Hill, and that's why my best friend called me one night and said, bro, I'm at your house. Your wife's water broke. You better get back here. So here I come as fast as I can, using for the first time ever that mysterious phone that they put on the back of the seat of airplanes to call to see if the baby's here yet. I got there about half an hour before he was born and an obstetrics nurse looked at me and said, so, Mr. South Carolina decided to join us. <laughs> just, and that, that child has been off my schedule and embarrassing me in some way or another, making my life inconvenient ever since. <laughs> now listen, that's a funny story that involves an airplane phone and an airplane that allowed me to arrive just in time for Mary and Joseph. It was different. Have no help, no support. They're about 80 miles from home. And perhaps that long journey, the Christmas cards tell me she was on a donkey and Joseph was walking. The truth is, we have no idea. I'm sure the carpenter from that little town did the best he could to make her as comfortable as he could, and I'm sure his daily prayer was please let us get home. This is a madhouse. People who haven't been in town for years are all here. Everything's overbooked. Everything's completely crowded. Please let us get home. And then one day she grabs her stomach and gives that fearful look that pregnant women do, saying, it's time. And it gets worse if you understand the culture. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's so familiar that you're likely to hallmarkize it and see Christmas cards. Can you see Christmas cards in your mind as I'm reading this story? Shake that off just a little bit and try to understand the social dynamic that is likely behind those simple words. See, we're very individualistic in America And our kids not only move out at a certain point, we expect them to move out, we encourage them to move out. In the ancient world, they were a group culture. They lived and died and rejoiced and fought together. What was likely in those cultures was to build another room onto the house, not to move away. This is as tight-knit a society as there has ever been. And for whatever reason, on the day of her greatest need, a girl who was probably about 16 years old couldn't find anything better than a stable. Tradition says it was in a cave. Some people believe this was likely the bottom floor of somebody's house. What is for sure is that animals attended the birth because he's laid in a manger. In plainer English, he is laid in a feeding trough. That's where Jesus has his head to rest for the very first time in his little life. Imagine how crowded it must have been. Imagine, more importantly, how uncaring somebody had to be to say that the best we can do for the pregnant girl is the stables. There's some family tension in this story. I'm not entirely sure of the exact location of Jesus' birth, but I can't help but miss the rejection, the judgment in this story that the best they could find was a trough. So Mary did what women in her day did for their children. She took long, clean strips of cloth and with trembling hands wrapped baby Jesus as tight as she could. And Joseph the carpenter, who must have been good at his work, did the very best he could cleaning out a feeding trough that just hours before had probably been used by an animal. And there, I'm sure, wishing as a father he could do so much more, he cradled his little son. As a launch, from my perspective, from the human perspective, this whole scene is a disaster. It just gets bad and then it gets worse. And believe it or not, it's not over. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Can you see them in the Christmas card? Right? Pretty good looking guys, right? They've got the little cloth tied around their head. Pretty good looking bunch for the most part. Let me tell you a little bit about shepherds. It was a noble profession. David was once called from the sheep pens to be the king of Israel. But it wasn't admired. It was a dirty profession. They were considered a little bit of rascals in their day. In fact, they were considered untrustworthy, kind of a thieving lot. And religiously, they were ceremonially unclean to go to worship. In other words, the shepherd couldn't go straight to the temple. He had to undergo some pretty demanding religious steps so that he would be acceptable to God. They're out in the field to do their work, but they're also there because nobody particularly wants to hang out with them. They're a rough bunch, and this particular group, if they were like typical shepherds, probably had the smell of wineskins all over them. They They smell like sheep and cheap wine, and then this happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Yeah, I guess so. Suddenly, on a dark night, a single glorious messenger from God appears to them. Light shines around them, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born in this day In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's not one personal name in that announcement. It's all titles. Who's being born? A Savior is. A rescuer. He is coming into the world that was dark then and dark now. Slavery and degradation and death haunted every human step then and now. That's why Jesus is coming, not as a helper, not as a life coach. He is coming as a rescuer and a savior. His name is not mentioned, he is called by a title. He is the Christ. He is the one that God has sent, that God has anointed and appointed. And make no mistake, the king is in a manger, but he is the Lord. What nobody could tell on this night is that God has moved on a pagan emperor's heart to make this incredibly oppressive edict of taxation and travel just so that the Son of God will be born exactly where God said He would be 700 years before through the writings of one of the prophets. God's calling the shots, but it's a humbling and humiliating process that He's using to do it. This announcement, the fact that they were chosen as the audience, tells you something about God and tells you something about Jesus. If God wanted a credible, upstanding witness, he would have started with someone better than the shepherds. You imagine these guys coming in stained with grass and who knows what else, smelling maybe of wine to say all the prophecies are true and God told us? Nonsense. But a Savior, God announced to them, is coming for you. I will bring good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, the Christ, the Savior, the Lord of all. So they went and they hurried to the manger where they were told they would witness this strange sight. Perhaps it had never happened before. A baby was in an animal's feeding trough. It says in verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And again, you see your little nativity scene. How many of you have nativities? You put the shepherds around, and it's all really cool. Ladies, if I may, and I'm very careful to talk about these life experiences because I cannot share them, and I've made stupid, I've said stupid things like telling people that it was an easy delivery. It was a miracle I survived that day. Easy from my perspective. I just sat there and said, it's a boy. All right. (laughs) On the day of your birth, do you want smelly strangers crowding into the stable to take a look? There's not one glorious thing that's happening here. It's all very earthly. It's all very human. It's all very humble savior of the world has been at least given a polite reason why he cannot be born with any other family and loved ones around his mother and father to comfort them and encourage them in such a stressful time. A teenage girl having her first child has done her best with the carpenter who never expected probably to be any kind of obstetrician. Mary's mother certainly would have been there, some sister, some cousin, somebody would be there. It fell to the two of them to do their best in a stable, put the baby boy in a manger and wrap him as best they could to keep him safe and make him warm against what was probably a night certainly too cold for a newborn whenever Jesus was born. And now... Some of the 'er ne'er-do-wells who are necessary to society but not necessarily admired in society, they come crowding into the stable saying, it's true, God showed up and angels, the host of heaven sang to us and told us that God was keeping his promises to us. Can we see the baby? It's a tough scene. It's a humble scene. And it has the signature of the love of God all over it. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. What's the teenage girl doing? Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. That's how God did it. Why? Why? Why did he choose to do it in this way? So that people 2,000 years later, reading in his word, which is historically accurate and prophetically remarkable, would know this single, simple idea. We need a Savior. We need a rescuer. But see, here's the thing about the Savior. We have a humble Savior. So let's please not dare to be proud ourselves. Jesus came lowly in some ways quietly rejected from the very moment of his birth. The very nature of his life whispered and gossiped about he was slandered before he was even born. The only people who came to attend him were smelly strangers from a necessary but somewhat dirty profession who were not in that state even welcomed into the worship of God's people. But God said to them, unto you a Savior has been born and this is good news for the whole world. The rescuer has come in a humble corner calling people out of a fifth-rate town that nobody wants to go to in a region that is synonymous with being backwater and in need and in poverty. Among all of that, in all of that weakness, in all of that inability, God has sent a tremendously able, capable rescuer, and he really is the Lord. And the reason he is a humble savior leads me to this simple idea, I dare not be proud myself. Have you ever met a proud Christian? This is church, but we can speak honestly among each other, okay? You ever met a cocky Christian? If you have, you've met a contradiction in terms. If you've ever named anyone who names Jesus as Savior, who is himself marked by pride, you're meeting a walking contradiction. If you've ever been a proud Christian, and I have, I fight it every single day of my life. I myself am a walking contradiction when I forget the humble Savior who came to the dirt of this earth because it's the only way to rescue me. Luke will say at the end of this chapter with admiration that Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and man. That means that from conception to death, Jesus identified with every single part of the human experience with this remarkable difference. He was tempted as I am, but he did not sin as I do. And he went through every bit of the humiliation of being a human being on earth, including being, amazingly, an ignorant baby who needed shielding and protecting from the world who eventually one day discovered that he had hands and learned his name and learned to read and learned to obey his mom and dad and learned who God was and learned to please him. Hebrews says, even through tears, Jesus obeyed God. Why did he do all that? Why all of this humiliation? So that I could be rescued by him with him as my substitute and my savior. That's why I dare not be proud. All this has been done for me. I haven't been given religious advice. I have had good news announced to me. And I dare not be proud. And we're living at a time in a dark, conflicted, angry world where Christians are more known, usually, for loud vo- voices and proud than they are for their broken-hearted humility. We dare not be those people. Where does pride show up? It shows up at every turn. When I am prayerless, I am proud because I am saying to the God of the universe who is kind enough to listen that I don't need to talk to him anymore. I can go out and do it myself now. When my Bible remains closed, I can allege busyness or distraction or all kinds of interruptions, but the truth is I have not been humble enough to say... On a regular basis, Father, I need to hear from you. You've given me your very words and writings. Speak to me that I may listen and grow and change. When I give, that's an evidence of humility. That I'm not proud enough to control it and keep it all for myself, that I'm humble enough to let go of some of it and trust that God will provide. When I witness, in other words, in this world where you're allowed to say just about anything now except that Jesus is the only way to heaven, when I keep quiet about that, there's only really one reason. I'm concerned about what people will think of me, and that's pride. I should be much more concerned about what they will do with him. At every point, At every turn, I have a struggle between following the humble Savior and saying goodbye to my pride. Crosspoint, let's be a humble church. A humble church is grateful and generous and bold. A humble church makes little of itself and much of its Savior. Let's be those people. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I've been trying to tell you the truth through that this whole sermon. Your only hope of heaven is the king who was put down in an animal's trough. He's the only way you'll ever see heaven. He's the only covering for your sin. He's your only hope of righteousness. If you haven't trusted him, my invitation to you as I close this sermon is that you will turn to him in your own humble words. You don't need anybody to mouth words for you. There are no magic prayers. You just turn to God and say, God, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. I've lived my own way. I've done my own thing. I'm tired of it. I'm ready to surrender to you. Please forgive me. And he will because the humble Savior came to save, and he wants to save and strengthen us. Let's pray together. Father, speak to those who have heard this message in your own voice, in your own way. If I've done anything to distract them from what you have for them, make that fade and speak to them now. If anybody here needs to be saved and rescued by Jesus, let them turn to you right now while I'm quiet and let them talk to you about it and receive your forgiveness. For the many here, Lord, who have already trusted you and we have the great privilege, undeserved, of calling you Savior, Rescuer. God, make us so weary of our pride that we will turn to you and follow you in humility. Help us to learn from you who became a human being, who became obedient to the point of death on the cross so that we could have life while you tasted death. If anybody needs that, help them call out to you right now and let us know about that, filling out that card or praying with someone or talking to me or somebody else. Let them turn to you and let us know we will rejoice with them. Help them learn, help them grow, what it means, Lord, to grow up in your family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.